God is good all the time. Welcome to everybody that joins us online. Welcome to our Millstadt and our CM campuses. I hope you're ready to jump in tonight because I think God is going to speak very clearly and specifically to some of you right where you are. I also believe that there may be some people who came here tonight needing a word from God. I'm just going to pray that God gives you that word tonight through the scriptures. Immense pressure was being exerted on the Philippian church. Roman persecution of Jews and Christians was intensifying as the cult of emperor worship elevated Caesar to Lord. Suddenly, Caesar not only demanded the obedience and adoration of the people, but now commanded their worship. The fact that most of the emperors of this period were three-quarters nuts at best didn't really seem to matter. On the other hand, it explains almost everything. Worshiping a human being was the one thing that neither Jews nor Christians would ever, ever, ever accept. You see, we have to have those lines, those points of demarcation in our life where we say, I am not ever, ever, ever going to accept that. And for the Jews and the Christians, putting any God alongside of the one true God was one place they were never, ever, ever going to go. It was the kind of hill you die on. And a lot of them died on that hill. Disacerbate matters. The fact that Christianity was growing more Gentile by the day and rapidly breaking from Judaism removed certain legal protections and religious freedom protections that were offered to Jews from Christians. All of a sudden, Christians are just straight up on their own. Things went well for the religiously pragmatic in the Roman Empire. As long as you would take a pinch of incense annually, take it in front of a magistrate, throw it on a flame, and say, Caesar is Lord. You do that, everything is well for you. Let's face it, if you're a polytheist, what's another god in the cocktail of gods? But the monotheistic Jews and Christians believe there was only one true God, and it certainly certainly wasn't Nero, Claudius, Caesar, Augustus, Germanicus, or as we know him, Nero. The refusal to participate in emperor worship was not viewed as a religious protest. It was viewed as a sign of blatant disloyalty to the empires. So the Philippian church and the Christians in the Philippian church didn't flunk their religion class. They flunked their civics class. We now enter the body of this letter after only several months. <laughs> Surrounded by increasing Christian persecution, impacted by anti-Semitism, you have to remember, in the minds of many in the empire, Christianity is just a sect, S-E-C-T, of Judaism. So they're still getting anti-Semitic feelings, though a lot of them are just Gentiles. Suffering from inner strife, disheartened by Paul's precarious incarceration, the Philippian church was getting shoved from all directions. Have you ever had a time in your life when you were getting shoved from every conceivable direction? That's where they were. They were disheartened. They were discouraged. And disheartened and discouraged people often fold underneath the pressure. And yet to throw in the proverbial towel here would be a serious blow to the Christian movement in Greece. You see, Philippi was not just a congregation. They were Paul's most generous benefactors. They were his most ardent supporters. So Paul understood how the risk and the spiritual importance of reaching out to this incredibly strategic congregation when they were just shaking at their core. It's a part of the reason he wrote this letter. 
And what I want to say to you is that discouragement is a soul cancer. A lot of times we, we th- look at discouragement inside of us and we, can, we consider it to be an inconvenience. It's not. It's a soul cancer. Discouragement can be spiritually deadly if you feed it and if you let it grow. And Paul is writing this letter as a prescriptive healing balm for an incredibly discouraged people. Sometimes the pressure we face is external. It comes from the outside. And sometimes the pressure we face is internal. External pressure seems to galvanize and unite people. But internal pressure can incapacitate us. We each have an interior self. The Greeks called our morphe. And the interior self is who we truly are. It's who we truly are. And then there's a, a public self that the Greeks called the scheme, and that's how we appear, all right? We all know that there are some differences between how we truly are in our hearts and our heads and how we appear to people. We, we all know that. We might think of this as the difference between who people are and how they appear on social media. You ever notice that some people on social media uh, just feel like that social media is like a bartender for people don't, who don't drink, and they just tell social media all their problems. Other people want to appear perfect. Perfect. And I don't mean look perfect. I mean use filters. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they want to appear perfect. Well, the reality is the people who want to tell you every problem probably aren't that bad all the time. And the people who look that perfect aren't that good all of the time. I think there is a reality to all of this that we really need to embrace. And I think part of it is just understanding that the we who people see and the we who people are are two different things. At least they can be. Because let's face it, uh, with some coaching, most people can appear normal for an hour and a half. For some, how they conduct themselves at home and work and at school is completely different than how they conduct themselves at church. People come to me at a fairly regular basis and say, does so-and-so go to your church? And I'll say, yes. And then they'll tell me what a terrible person they are. And I will always respond, well, just think how much worse they'd be if they didn't go to church. Doesn't bother me any. And hopefully they're improving a little bit, right? I mean, hopefully they're improving just a little bit. Uh, I think we know that sometimes at church we are our best selves. And if you caught us at times at, at home or when we're by ourselves or when we're at work or we're at school, maybe we're a little less impressive than we are at church. I think we all kind of know that happens. And yet, what happens in our actions and what happens in our minds, it's really just one thing. It just appears different from where you look. I think sometimes outsiders see this dynamic as hypocrisy. I'm not so sure. I really am not so sure. I'm not as hard on Christians as non-Christians are. You ever notice non-Christians have all kinds of very strong opinions about what churches ought to be doing? They don't attend, they don't support, they don't volunteer, but by gosh, they have a lot of ideas. Uh, I'm not horribly hard on Christians. I, I think no matter how bad someone is, it's better for them to be in church than not be in church. You get them to church, maybe, maybe God can, can do something with them. 
You know? I don't know about you. Do we need fishermen here? Uh, I'm terrible at fishing. I, I don't enjoy it because I'm terrible at it. I like going those deep sea fishing things. Everybody around me is catching fish. Nothing. The first 12 times, you just think you're unlucky, and then it starts to occur to you, I'm terrible at this. Every time I fish, I feel like it's the one moment in the history of humankind that fish have finally figured out. We're trying to trick them. <laughs> We're trying to trick them, and they all figured out on me. Every single one of them. So when I fish, I have no real intention of catching fish because it never happens. So I'm just going to throw a lure out there, and I'm going to reel it in very, very quickly. A few years ago, I caught a fish. I snagged it. I did. I snagged it. I was reeling in the lure at about 80 miles an hour, and I guess the fish was going by, and I stuck one of those little hooks in it, and I, I snagged the fish. I caught him by the tail. And I guess that's how I feel about church. You get somebody in here, we might snag one or two. So I kind of like the fact that everybody is in church, and I'm not going to be real hard on them about it. I'm really not. You know, you think about this. Uh, if your kids are a whole lot better in public or at school than they are at home, you're probably not going to complain about it, are you? I mean, no parent would say, you kids are hypocrites. You need to act far worse when you're not here. I don't think anybody's going to say that. <laughs> what we would say is, you know, if you kids can be good while you're in public, it at least suggests the possibility you could be better here, right? I think the ability to be good some of the time indicates maybe they have the ability to be good more of the time. And maybe when people can come to church and, you know, maybe go for like an entire hour and a half and not say the F word, maybe that shows they could do that at another hour and a half. You know, I mean, maybe, maybe if they could be good people for an hour and a half, maybe here, maybe they could also be better people there. You know, I just... I'm just not real hard on people. I think people have potential. When people are at church, I always ask myself, why are they here? Well, they're just here to make people think. I don't think anybody works that hard these days. I mean, Ben Franklin was big on that, right? Go to church, people think you're honest and all that kind of stuff. I don't think anybody thinks about that these days. I think people come to church because there's something inside of them that compels them to go. And a lot of these folks have very complicated lives. And a lot of these folks have addictions. And a lot of these folks have self-inflicted problems. And I'm glad they're here. I'm glad they're here. So as you invite people with the 500 campaign, don't, don't just try to find people that look like they'll fit in. Bring us some good straight-up heathens, and let's just see if we can't snag one or two. <laughs> I just you can't snag one or two. I think at church, many people are for a short time the person they wish they were all the time. And whatever word defines that, I, I truly don't think it's hypocrisy. There's a deceptive nature to hypocrisy that I don't find in play here. I think church is an opportunity for people to be some of the time the person they wish they were all the time. But ideally, as we grow in Christ, our church self should start expanding into our home self and our work self and our parent self and our spouse self and our school self. It's good, but it's seldom steady progress. You know, I guess a lot of times I think Christian growth should happen like like a good business chart up and to the right, you know, to just go up and to the right. But it really doesn't happen like that. It's kind of these peaks and, and valleys. And, you know, if we were here and now we're there, very seldom does this explain it, you know? It's usually this and this and this and this and this and this. And you kind of got to look at it like you look at the stock market. You know, if you guys are living off of a uh, nest egg right now, you really don't want to look at the stock market on a day-to-day -day basis, you really won't want to do that, not without something to throw up in. And so I just think that when we look at our spiritual life, we just kind of have to look at it over the long period of time. And then 
there are times that we think we're on it. Have you ever had a time when you just thought you were on your spiritual life? It's a little bit like golf. You guys ever play golf and really felt like you just figured the whole game out? And you can for like two holes. And then something just starts leaking on you, you know? Have you ever thought you were really walking close to the Lord? And then all of a sudden, you're up against a highly pressurized stressor, and it just blows your morphe right past your schema, and all of a sudden, you're right back at square one. That's like a Greek joke. <laughs> These kind of setbacks can be internally discouraging. They also can be publicly embarrassing. Have you ever posted something or acted in such a way as it was just publicly embarrassing? You know, it's one thing to fall off your wagon. It's something else to fall off the wagon while you're in a parade with lots of people watching. I remember not so long ago, I was at uh, Target, and I heard a huge commotion. And this customer was incredibly irate. They were screaming and yelling at two or three of the employees. And I walked up. The customer went to our church. And so I just made sure that they saw me. I just went out of my way just to make sure that we made eye contact. I didn't say a word. I didn't say a word. But, you know, it was one of those kind of situations. And I think for the sake of the gospel, Paul is telling the Philippian church, I know things are really hard. And I know it's really tough to be a Christian. And I know I'm your spiritual leader. And I'm awaiting capital trial, and they may cut my head off. But I need you not to fall apart. Jesus needs you not to fall apart. And what I want to tell you, regardless of where you're at right now, I need you as your spiritual leader not to fall apart. And Jesus needs you not to fall apart. He needs you to let him hold it together, because you can't hold it together. And maybe that's why people that don't know Jesus come to church. Because they know they can't hold things together. And they suspect maybe Jesus can help them do that. Or better yet, maybe he can do it for them. Verse 1. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Is there any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the spirit? Are your hearts tender? Are compassionate. I think it's important to remember when we're tempted to blow apart that we have a power source that non Christians simply do not possess the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. The idea being expressed here is not to try harder to lean into these five virtues that Paul's about to offer, it's to use them to mark our Christian progress. These are not things that make you a Christian. These are signs that you're growing as a Christian. And they're also things that we experience both individually and we experience collectively. In the same sense, an individual can feel like they're going to blow apart. A church can feel like it's going to blow apart as well. Most often, these things that Paul's about to offer us are virtues displayed by those that love us toward us and virtues that we display toward those we love. So Paul is going to say the antidote to incredibly pressurized situations that aren't going away, that threaten to blow us apart, is found in these five things. Number one, encouragement. Encouragement means to offer and receive courage. Encourage. It's to uplift. So part of the role that we have as Christian people toward one another is that we need to encourage one another. So we need to know when people are down. And we just need to encourage them. I talk a lot about pings, these God promptings. But if somebody ever just comes to your mind... Uh, if you hear something or you know somebody's going through something and God just brings them to your mind, why don't you pick up the phone and give them a call? Why don't you text them? Just say, I'm praying for you. 
You say, I don't know him that well. Send him a card. I don't have the address. Call the office. But when you know somebody's hurting, do something. Do something. Encourage one another. Did you know somebody alongside you doesn't make a hard thing easy, but it makes it bearable. To know people are praying for you. And to know somebody out there actually cares means something. Heard something years ago. It says, if you don't think anyone cares whether you live or die, just don't make your mortgage payment for six months. (laughs) The bank will certainly develop an interest in you. Well, we need to develop an interest in one another. And we need to be encouragers of one another. If you don't have people in your life who encourage you, you need some new people in your life. Just need new people in your life. Number two, comfort. Comfort is to offer and receive solace. Comfort is to relieve suffering. This is what comfort does. It sticks a shoulder underneath the burden of another person. And you say, well, I can't carry that burden all the time. You don't have to all the time. Sometimes just having somebody willing to stick that shoulder underneath your burden for 30 minutes can make a big difference. It can make a big difference. So comfort one another. Number three, fellowship. This is to offer and receive companionship. It's to live in community. One of the things I love about Wednesday night is that we, it's it's a very simple service. It's kind of no bells and and no whistles. We we have kind of unplugged worship. And then I teach the Bible. And that's kind of what we do. But before this, a lot of people come early. And I know some of you got to get in from St. Louis and traffic and all that. And I'm just glad you're here. But some people who are able come early. And, and they grab something to eat in the cafe. And they visit with each other. And uh, it's a beautiful, wonderful thing. It really is. It's kind of the modern potluck. Nobody has time to make a casserole. And frankly, no one today is going to eat a casserole that somebody brought they don't know. Because deep in their heart, they believe that there might have been a cat on their countertop. <laughs> but we don't have cats here. And what they make in the cafe is perfectly edible by humans and perfectly sanitary by all standards. And some people just come to fellowship with each other. And I want to suggest that that's a good thing. You know, after the service is over, uh, bookstores still open. If you want to sit around for a few minutes, those are good things. If you want to come early, those are good things. You don't just have to be at church when we have church. It's also a great place for fellowship. Number four is tenderness. To be offered sensitivity, to be sensitive to the needs of others, to hurt with others. Some of you have incredible gifts with this. Some don't. But it's, it's just to be sensitive, just to care about people. And you do need people in your life that care about you, and not everybody's going to. How's that? For I'm sad you had to hear it here first. <laughs> not everybody's going to care about you, and not everybody that should care about you is going to care about you. Not everybody that should love you is going to love you. Not everybody that should treat you right is going to treat you right. But there will be people out there that have tender hearts towards you. And you may not know those people yet. But I can tell you this, this church is filled with really wonderful people. This church is filled with really wonderful people. And I don't know that you know that until you need some truly wonderful people. And I'm very proud of the people here. I really am. I see them rally. And I see caring and tenderness. And then the fifth one is compassion. This is to be offered genuine concern and offer concern to others, to, to sympathize with people. And this is going to take time. I simply do not have time to have conversations on a regular basis with 5,000 people. I, I can't do it. So this is kind of what you get out of me. I'm using my gifts. This is kind of what you get out of me. Uh, but some of you haven't been called to do what I do you got a little more time. And that time is well spent 
and just showing compassion to each other, to offer concern to each other, to sympathize with people. One of the things that just really impressed me tonight, I walked through, which I always walk, right? They, all the security people draw lots before every service, and whoever loses gets stuck with me. I, I feel bad about it because I'm just always moving, you know? Somebody said to me a few weeks ago, they said, hey, I was looking for you. I said, just stand still. I'll be by, you know? I, I'm just always out, always going. But tonight, I was walking around, and I saw two or three of you praying with someone else. You know how cool that is? <laughs> You were, you were just praying with people. I guess somebody maybe shared a need. But I mean, you were praying with each other. You didn't say, well, I need to go find Reverend Carmen so she can pray with you. You just prayed with them yourself. Did you know you can do that? That's allowed. You don't have to be ordained to do that. You can just pray with people. And it's really a cool thing. But it's a way that we show compassion for each other. So five signs of growth. Are you an encourager? Are you a comforter? Are you somebody who values fellowship? Do you have a tender heart and do you show compassion toward people? These are ways that you can show that you're growing in Christ. When we first become Christians, these are all things we need. When we become mature Christians, these are things we give. These are things we give. A major part of our Christian journey is allowing God to do his transforming work in us over time. The old Methodist called the sanctification and you say, well, I thought you weren't a Methodist anymore. I'll always be a Methodist. I'm not a united Methodist. I'm not a part of a denomination. But uh, John Wesley spoke to my soul when I was a young man. And if I could just diverge for just a second, let me tell you why I became a Methodist. Because John Wesley believed that you could worship God in spirit and in truth. And you could also invest yourself in caring about people and making the world a better place. He felt that you could do both of these things. And it captivated me because I was raised up in a small town in southern Illinois. About half the churches we call conservative churches, they were the large churches. They had great worship services, but had they disappeared, I don't think the town would have missed them a bit. Then we had these other churches we called liberal churches, and they were all really small and most of them, if you went to church there, it was like watching Cheese Age. It was just terrible. And, and, and their services were awful, and they were small. But they were the people that, that did the welcome home ministries. And they were the people that offered shelter to people in need. And they were the people that, that stocked the food pantry. And, and, and it always occurred to me, shouldn't, shouldn't churches kind of do both of those things? And Wesley kind of showed me you could. Wesley was the most dynamic preacher and leader of his day, but... Wesley, you know, his best-selling book was The Primitive Physic. And what he did was he went around and got home medical cures from people, and he wrote a book for poor people about how to stay healthy who couldn't ever afford a doctor. You ought to read it sometime. It's just awful. <laughs> I mean, you know, baldness. He, he said, you know, electrical shock and rub an onion on your head. Do you know how I would smell every single day if I rubbed an onion on my head? And my feeling is I'd still be going bald. I would just remind everybody of Valdalia, Georgia, when I walked around. And so, but he cared. It was both and. It wasn't either or. And that, for me, is so important to my understanding of Christianity. So if I were to offer a formula for growing in Christ, it's simply faithfulness over time. You can't cheat either. You can't cheat faithfulness and you can't cheat time. It's going to take a while for God to forge God's holiness in you. Holiness celebrates the power of the Holy Spirit to move us from where we are toward where God would have us be. And I think we've all had times we were discouraged by our lack of spiritual progress. You ever had times you just disappointed yourself? You know, we think we're over our anger issues, and then somebody pulls out in front of us, and it's anger issues all over again. We think God's delivered us from our sharp tongue, and then someone gets under our skin, and that horrible thing starts flapping again. We think God's delivered us from a destructive habit, and then we hit a tough stretch of highway, and it throws us back into the swirling toilet of addiction. 
We think God has healed our marriage and one unresolved conflict takes us back to the brink of losing everything all over again. It's easy to get down on ourselves. But I think it's also important that we remember John 3, 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved. I think like closers in baseball. You guys, you guys any baseball fans here? You've been watching the Cardinals? It's just horrible, isn't it? It's just a terrible, <laughs> terrible thing to watch. Well, last night, the, the Cardinals have a closer who, who's their, their pitcher that's supposed to close out games for them. Guy throws like 200 miles an hour, right? So the Cardinals had a lead in the ninth inning for the first time in a while, it seemed like. They have their best guy in. They are one strike away from winning. The guy delivers the ball, and the Giants player hits a three-run home run, and the Cardinals lose on a walk-off home run. You know that pitcher? He needs to forget about that. Now, I'm not going to. But he needs to. He needs to forget all about that. And the next time he gets up, he needs to go up fresh. You know, Peter could have lamented his denial of Jesus his whole life. But rather than let one failure define him, he chose to grow from it. Rather than beat yourselves up, I just challenge you to celebrate the good things God has done in your life. Don't let just lament your failure. Celebrate your victories. We're all going to stumble and fall from time to time, both in our schema and in our morphe. And on these occasions that we stumble, we need to ask God to forgive us. We need to ask those we've hurt to forgive us. We need to make things right where we can. We need to receive God's forgiveness. We need to forgive ourselves. We need to get our heads back on straight, and we need to move on. And part of what I want to share tonight is if you've made mistakes in your life, but you've done everything you can to rectify them, and if you've asked God to forgive you, it's time to forgive yourself, get your head on straight, and move on. It's just time to move on. The next time you're in a situation where you once would have fallen apart, but somehow God enabled you to hold it together, just rejoice. Just rejoice. Throw a used to what a party. I love Southern Illinois words, and I'm not above making up my own, but one of my very favorite is used to what a. So let me use it in a sentence. I used to would have blown to pieces right about now, but by the power of God in my life, I'm standing upright. And I'm standing on solid ground. And it's so awesome, we need to go get ice cream. <laughs> we need to learn to celebrate what God has done in our lives. Even as we anticipate what God has yet to do. Are you perfect? No, you are not. Am I perfect? Heavens, no. But is God's perfecting work being done in us? I hope so. I certainly hope so. Are we ever going to be sinless? Eh. Can we sin less? Mm -hmm. I think we can. Paul now offers four concepts for us to put in play when our lives threaten to blow apart. These things will not only keep us standing, but he says these will bring us immeasurable joy. These are a little more complicated, but let's take about, talk about staying upright as a church. I'm thinking collectively here. Number one, unity in mission. Verse 2, then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. John Wesley said on matters of faith, on the big matters of faith, we need to stand in agreement. And on smaller matters, we, need, we can think and let think. So I thought today, what are the big things about the faith? What are the big, the big things? I mean, the big things for the early Christians was we're, we're not going to worship Nero. We're not going to do it. So what are the big things for us? Here's what I think the big things are. The existence of an active God. The saving work of Jesus Christ. The power of the Holy Spirit. The mission of the church and the authority of scripture. Those are my biggies. Those are just my biggies. And I think if we can agree on the big stuff, then God can do incredible things as we unite around our mission of connecting people to Jesus Christ. When I, when I read this, Paul sounds very much like a father talking to his spiritual children because he opens up saying, if you want to make me happy. Isn't that something? 
There's some, there's some assumptions being made there, aren't they? Number one, he's assuming that the children care about him. Enough to make him happy or, or not happy. But he says, if you want to make me happy, if you want to make me very, very happy, then agree with one another, love one another, and work together with one mind and one purpose. So what I'm going to say to you, if we want to make God happy as a church, we need to agree with one another, we need to love one another, and we need to work together with one mind and purpose. One of the things I love about the New Christ Church, we'll be celebrating our uh, Charter Sunday this week, where I'm just going to be casting some, some vision But we're also celebrating our disaffiliation, becoming an independent church. It's our second anniversary. We're two years old, and yes, we're having cupcakes. Yeah, free cupcakes. You just get to, you you pick them up and you eat them. Nobody, you don't have to swipe or anything. They're just free. I said, Al, can we have free coffee too? He said, not a chance. So free cupcakes you're going to get, all right? Free cupcakes. Uh, These are major components of a church. And one of the things I love about our new church, if you get on our website, you can just look up our beliefs. Every single belief we have is right there. I just love that. We have full disclosure. We're not hiding anything. You say, what if people see stuff they disagree with? Duh. Of course they'll see stuff they disagree with. We're not saying what they ought to think. We're saying what defines this community of faith. And if you want to be a part of it, great. And if we're not the church for you, that's just fine. But this is who we are. And that's what Paul said. Decide who you are, Philippians church. Decide who you are. These are really important things. In my first ministry job, In my first ministry job, I was the director of family life ministries at a Southern Illinois church. And what that really meant was I was a youth director who also ran a gym. It was a kind of church where doing things in memory and in honor of people was the way they raised money. So under almost every window and on every pew and on everything that didn't float in the air, you had a plaque. And it was a memorial or an, an honor of. And we were at a church board meeting, and we were all trying to figure out how to afford to get gym equipment because we needed some money for gym equipment. And somebody suggested that we fund the project with memorials. I was really young back then and did not, I would say, was not blessed with impulse control <laughs> when I was young. And I just quipped that's a great idea, but how will we get the gold plaques attached to the basketballs without deflating them? (laughs) Then the subject shifted to whether or not we needed a director of family life ministries (laughs) at the church. Ministry can be really, really hard, but if people want personal credit, things can often become impossible. So one of the things I just want to share is is there's really no me in unity. There's really no me in unity. I am no more a part of this church than you are. You are no less a part of this church than I am. I'm simply doing what God's asked and equipped me to do, and I simply ask you to do what God's asked and equipped you to do. There is no hierarchy. We are a priesthood of believers here. It's who we are. So there's really no me in unity. Number two, focus on Christ. Don't be selfish, verse three. Don't try to impress others. Selfishness puts personal agenda ahead of the collective mission. And it actually becomes a hindrance to the mission. It's like a basketball or a baseball player who cares more about individual statistics than whether or not their team wins. Hall of Famer Orlando Cepeda joined the St. Louis Cardinals in 1966. In 1967, he hit 25 home runs and drove in 111 runs. He helped the Cardinals to win a World Series. It's interesting to me, he came from the San Francisco Giants. The Giants boasted such superstars as Willie Mays, Willie McCovey, and Juan Marshall. And when they asked about his former and present teams, Cepeda concluded the Giants had better players but the Cardinals played as a team. Players playing for themselves will always be less than the sum of their parts. 
players playing for the team will always be greater than the sum of their parts. The same goes for a company, the same goes for a family, and the same goes for a school, and the same goes for a church. A church is a team. And when we're prepared to contribute as the team needs us, and when we're prepared to do what God has called and equipped us to do, we put the team in a position to win. And what's our win? Connecting people with Jesus Christ. That's our win. That's what we celebrate. Selfish people say, look at me and look at what I've done. They're always spouting their statistics to try to impress themselves and others. And Winners say, look at us and what we have done. They point to the accomplishments of the team. They derive their self-worth by contributing to something greater than themselves. But as Christians, we must say, look at what Jesus has done. It's not about we. It's not about me. It is about what Christ has done. We must discover our place in the church. And we must insist that God gets all the praise and all the honor and all the glory. And when accolades come our way, we need to make sure it doesn't go to our heart and we need to make sure it doesn't go to our head. We need to be grounded in Christ. Number three, humility. But be humble, thinking others better than yourselves. So what's the key to making a church work? How do you make a church work properly? It's it's humility. It's just straight-up humility. What keeps us from agreement and what keeps us from working toward a shared mission? Pride. Humility brings people together. Pride drives people apart. At church, at school, at work, at home, it's all the same. You get somebody that's full of them selves, and they're going to be very, very difficult to work with, and they, no matter how talented they are, they will detract from the success of the team. Humility will make you, pride will break you. When you learn to see the value and and the virtue in others, when you stop thinking about whether or not you're doing everything you're capable of, whether you're getting the thank yous that you need, all of those things. When you stop thinking about all of that, and when you start learning to see the value and virtue in other people, we we step into the realm of humility. My favorite definition for humility is, is understanding that every good thing that's happened to you has been made possible by the contributions of other people into your life. That's a really good way to stay humble. And humility values other people. And when you're humble, you lift other people up. Humility isn't saying, oh, I'm just terrible. I can't do anything. Let me give you the best scripture in the whole Bible that defines humility. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's not me. It's he. And through Christ, we are strengthened. That is humility. Humility is also realizing that no matter who someone else is, they may well have something to teach you. When I was doing my required hospital work in preparation for ordained ministry, I did a thing called a CPE. And there was an older chaplain in the program who seemed utterly useless to me. I had two growing churches at the time. I was working 70 hours a week. I was trying to be a good father. I was still hoping to improve to at least become a below-average husband. I was commuting three hours a day. I was totally exhausted. And to be fair with you, I was failing at everything except the church. How's that? Fair enough, miss? I was failing at everything except the church. The whole year that I did that CP was the most unwelcome inconvenience. I, I kept my final evaluation from my supervisor at CPE. I've memorized the first sentence. When we interviewed Shane, he informed us he did not want to take the CPE unit. I was convinced he would engage. I was wrong. And then there was like 20 pages after that. (laughs) That was a good part. It all went downhill after that. Uh, It was overwhelming. I didn't want to be there. And it seemed all this other guy was doing, he must have lived in the hospital. I don't even think he had to commute. He didn't have a job. I didn't appear to be, have anything to do 
except that unit. And he didn't seem to be doing much of that. One day, I was scampering down the hospital halls, trying to minister to the people in ICU well enough to pass my internship. And I just walked past the window, and I saw the most reverend Captain Worthless taking a break. And he was sitting there by himself in a rocking chair. The dude is sitting there in a rocking chair. I'm thinking, Captain, what do you have to rest from? I haven't seen you do anything. What are you resting from? He's just in this rocking chair. I just stopped in my tracks, and I just stared. I just never see anything like it. And he had his eyes closed. He was just, just rocking in that chair. Had the most content smile I'd ever seen. Made me sick. <laughs> I looked at him and I thought, here is a dude. And it is well with his soul. It is well with his soul. And my soul's a stinking hurricane. My soul is so messed up that when I see someone who has a good soul, it makes me angry. That's where I was. And it suddenly hit me that this man who couldn't preach a lick or lead a kid to an ice cream truck had more to teach me than I possibly imagined. I knew how to do for God. He knew how to be God's. I was in turmoil. He was at peace. No one in their right mind would have wanted to be me. Anyone would have wanted to be him. It was one of the most humbling experiences of my whole life. Absolutely humbling. Number four, altruism. Altruism. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others. There was always tension in the Roman culture between personal accomplishment and honor and the success of the empire. People were expected to sacrifice for the success of the empire. Though not unrelated, I mean, we know that successful people comprise a successful collective. The prevailing belief was that the whole could only reach its potential when self-interest was subservient to larger success. I, I, I look at like stuff from World War II, and, and I look at the I look at this generation of young men and young women who literally put their lives aside for a greater good. It's astounding to me. And I hate to say that I can't imagine people today doing that, but I can't imagine people today doing that. You know, to use our language, Paul would argue it's far better to be a solid player on a great team than be a great player on a terrible team. Paul kind of has this team first approach, and I think that understanding is essential to the effectiveness of the church. He's saying we shouldn't just care about us and ours. Even the heathen do that. We should care about one another, and we should care about the ministry of the church as a whole. And when we each do what God's asked us to do, it strengthens everyone. When we try to do too much, it weakens everyone. And when we do nothing at all, other people have to carry our load. I've often wondered, what if everybody in the church attended as much as you do, volunteered as much as you do, gave as much as you do, prayed for the church as much as you do, would this be a better church? Or would it be a lesser church? Those are the kind of questions Paul is, is asking us to consider here. Don't just look out for yourself, but take an interest in others. Take an interest in what God is doing in the church. Last verse tonight, verse 5, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Well, there's a tall order. Right? You must, uh, wouldn't it be better if he would have said, you need to have the same attitude Paul had? Paul's relentless, but Paul's testy. I get that. I get that. I can get testy at times. You say, well, I've never seen it. That's because I don't go out in public when I know I'm testy. 
I don't. I just don't go out in public. Sometimes I, I, just, I just say, I am not fit for human consumption today. Very seldom happens, but, but I get it. You know, Peter, be like Peter. That'd be easy, right? Just, just kind of blop through life and burst all over the place, you know? Uh, but that's not who we're asked to be like. We're asked to be like Jesus. We're asked to have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Now, I'm a firm believer that attitude affects our altitude, right? I'm just an attitude guy. Somebody said to me tonight, you know, they said, how are you doing today? I said, I'm doing fantastic. I made my mind up on that before I got out of bed this morning. I make my mind up on that every single day. My alarm goes off at 6 o'clock. 6 o'clock in the morning, because Melissa and I have coffee at 6. That means my alarm goes off at 6. It takes me a minute, 30 seconds to a minute to, to get up and, and to get going. But I mean, we're, we're, we're going to go. We're going to go. And I, I just got to get my mind made up right then. Are you sleepy? Nope. Are you feel good? Yep. Are we going to have a good day? Yep. And by the time I get here, I got to be ready to go. I think we determine our attitude. The Bible says, as a man thinks, so is he. And, and it's really just saying that our attitude affects everything else in our lives. Jesus was fully God, to be sure. But do you realize Jesus was also fully human? And I think it's in those human struggles where I most relate to Jesus. Uh, It's when Jesus and his family were cross-threaded. When the crowds turned on him. When his inside circle betrayed him. When he prayed in the garden and sweat rolled off of him like great drops of blood. We can relate to that, Jesus, can't we? We can relate to that, Jesus. Jesus knew that what he faced would be physically excruciating, spiritually isolating, emotionally debilitating in every conceivable way. He knew that he was going to have to pay the most horrific price any human could ever pay if he were to cover the price of our sin. And he did it anyway. He did it anyway. On the cross at Calvary, Jesus died for the past, present, and future sin of the world. When they beat his face, when they scourged his back, when they drove nails into his hands and feet, when they hoisted him into the air, it was not just blood that poured from his body. Love poured from his body as well. And we are to love one another like that.